And as you stand for us to read this text, we're going to be in verses 29 through 34. And I want us to just remember and keep in the back of our mind the broad context that we have here. We are five days or seven to five days probably away from Jesus Christ being crucified. The weight of all of biblical history, salvation history, is coming to a pinnacle very shortly. And Christ is traveling here with not just His disciples, but all of the Jewish people from Galilee that are going to Jerusalem for Passover. Verse 29 through 34 today. This is God's holy, inspired, infallible, and saving word given to us today. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Please pray with me. Lord, we are given this amazing picture, God, of the gospel that I would desire to have burned into our hearts and our minds, God, my heart and my mind today, that you would show us the compassion and the grace of Jesus Christ to those who are lost and desire salvation and those who are saved and do not know the right way to go. Lord, we pray for mercy that you would show us your word today. That the sin that so easily inhibits us from partaking of your word in a helpful and godly way, we pray, God, that you would restrain it so that we might grow in grace and see you, God, the glorified Son of God who died for us. Help us today. In Jesus' name we pray, God. Amen. You may be seated. As Christians, one of the things that we rejoice in, maybe not above other things, but certainly in line with other things, is the fact that God is a God that loves to reveal Himself. He loves to show who He is, especially to His creation. His attributes are so wonderful and marvelous that He speaks His Word and He inspires prophets to write down the very words and ideas of God that we might know Him and how to be saved by Him. But God also in His Word records that in history, He works in such ways as to reveal Himself. We can view these specifically as miracles. Miracles that God, as J. Gresham Machen says, a miracle is merely God immediately, that is without mediation, is working upon his created world to do something unusual to grab our attention. God works these signs and these miracles, but they are designed to do the same thing that the word of God is designed to do, that is to reveal who God 
is and to reveal our relationship to him. Signs always have this dual aspect to them, just as the word does. Here is your God. Here is an attribute or something about your God, and we are called to respond to it in a proper way. Our text today has a wonderful and miraculous sign given at a very peculiar context and time in our Savior's life. We have in this text the central idea is simply that two blind men plead with Jesus to mercifully restore their sight, and He compassionately heals them. You might have noticed when we read through, the word pity is used in our English translation of the ESV. Compassion is the same word that has been used. Where we read that Jesus was moved in His bowels in the King James Version. We've gone over that before. The same word is used here. They plead for mercy. Jesus gives compassion and pity to them. But, again, this is recorded to us today that we might respond appropriately. What does the Bible want us to do with this text? How is it supposed to affect us? I think two ways. First, it's to encourage. It's to encourage us to trust in Jesus Christ broadly and again broadly to warn us against trusting ourselves. And I hope that by the end of the sermon, those two points might make a little bit more sense to us. But first, before we get to the encouragement that we are supposed to derive from this sign, we have to ask, what does this sign teach us? What does the miracle itself supposed to reveal about God and us? As we've already said at length, there are many times throughout the scripture that God works immediately in his creation in order to show something about himself. And he does this in two different ways. He does it to reveal signs of judgment, first of all. Now, it doesn't take us long to recognize what these signs are supposed to reveal. Signs of judgment or miracles that show God's anger, his wrath against sin, are supposed to reveal God's holiness to us. But also... Our relationship to that holiness. That in our sin, we incur God's wrath. We could think of Mount Sinai. That God chose in history to perform a miracle on Mount Sinai where the whole mountain was on fire and in smoke. More than that, it trembled and quaked as God spoke to the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. And we might say, what was that to reveal? It's to reveal that God is holy, that man is sinful. And in our sinful state, without a mediator, we have right cause to be afraid of God. We might think of Nadab and Abihu in the book of Leviticus as these two sons of Aaron walk into the Holy of Holies with fire that God did not explicitly command them to bring incense that was strange And God had fire come out from the mercy seat and consume Nadab and Abihu again to show that God will be lifted up and made holy before his people. Now, we could go on and on, and time would fail us today, wouldn't it? To tell of Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood in the days of Noah, Elijah calling 
fire down from heaven to consume the captains of 50 and their 50s. Time would fail us to go through all of these things. We could even think of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar becoming like an animal and eating grass. God removing the human mind from him almost for him to do that. The death of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. God reveals himself graciously to his people that he does not delight in sin. He does not delight in sin. And through these signs, when we read them in the Scripture, we're called to meditate on them that we might come face to face with the holiness, the righteousness of God. But there are also signs of mercy, aren't there? That are meant to communicate to us through these miracles who God is as a merciful, compassionate, and gracious God. That same God with these same people in the wilderness also gave them manna from heaven. As the New Testament records, He gave them angels' food to eat. They drank water from the rock that followed them. And 1 Corinthians 10 says that rock was Christ. God provided for His people. He even did a sign, a miracle, where the clothes that they wore for those 40 years in the wilderness did not wear out on their bodies. God preserved them. He gave them healing by looking at the bronze serpent lifted up in Numbers chapter 22. He opened the wombs of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Elizabeth, and Mary to signify and show us that He will bring a Messiah into this world. And again, God, time would fail us, brothers and sisters, to see all the miracles that God gave that were supposed to communicate His grace, His perseverance, and His love towards His people. God loves His people and keeps His promises. Now, as we come to the New Testament, and specifically the life of our Savior Jesus Christ, and we consider the whole canon, the whole um, library of the miracles that He did for us, we might ask, what did they primarily communicate? It's shocking that we don't really have this mix, do we? Rather, we have Jesus Christ and His miracles overwhelmingly communicating the fullest and most astounding testimony of God's grace to sinners like us. Christ and His miracles always revealed That free salvation by grace through faith is offered to any and all that would ever come to him. None were too unclean, whether they be lepers or Gentiles. All that were unclean that came to Jesus and asked for cleansing were cleansed. None were too unable. Even paralytics brought to Jesus Christ lowered through the roof because they could not walk. They were made able to walk by Jesus' power. And the purpose of all of this was always to reveal the gospel. The signs that Jesus Christ worked worked in tandem with the words that He spoke that people might come to Him. In fact, as Brother Joey has been working hard to bring us the law and the gospel every week, I really believe this is the proper way for us to see the Sermon on the Mount related to the miracles that follow in chapters 8 and 9. We see Jesus Christ telling us how we ought to behave in the new kingdom 
in verse, chapters 5 through 7, but in chapters 8 and 9, we see our proper response to that. The first miracle is a leper coming up and saying, Lord, if you're willing, make me clean. These communicate the gospel. But if you're skeptical, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, which I believe is just a wonderful, interpretive passage that tells us how we ought to go about interpreting these miracles. I'm going to read verses 2 through 6. And behold, that is pay attention. Some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? The answer is, it's much easier to say, Rise and walk. Because I don't have to, there's no proof, there's nothing external that proves that your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, in order to prove that this man's sins are forgiven, tells him to rise and walk. Notice verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is the overarching purpose of all the miracles, to point us to the gospel that none is too unclean, none is too unable, none is too sinful to come to our Savior. God, through these miracles, encourages all to believe. To believe the gospel And we should ask then, seeing the miracles generally put that they teach us about ourselves and God, what does this specific sign symbolize in Matthew chapter 20? Well, first, we have to realize that blindness in the Scripture always symbolizes sinful spiritual ignorance. Okay, that's the best I could come up with. Sinful, spiritual ignorance. That is, not only are we blind to the truth about God, we are willingly blind to the truth of God. It's because we're sinners that we do not know God as we ought to know Him. Why we do not grasp doctrine even as we ought to grasp it. It is not merely intellectual. It has to do with our corrupt nature in our hearts. Blindness, then, is a lack of knowledge because our corrupt nature. We cannot think rightly about God because we love our sin to some degree. Now, I want us to notice just a couple of texts with this. We are blind, and blindness is linked to love of sin. The first is in Acts chapter 28. And again, brothers and sisters, as you're turning there, we could go to dozens and dozens of texts that affirm this reality. Acts chapter 28. And if you want some other texts to look into, just merely look at our liturgy um, that we read today um, and how God attributes blindness to sinfulness. Acts chapter 28. Notice, here we have Paul coming to Rome. 
And as he comes to Rome, he calls the Jewish people to himself because he desires to preach the gospel to them. And as he preaches the gospel to them, you might notice that they were disagreeing among themselves. Some were convinced by what Paul said, and others disbelieved in verse 24. Now notice verse 25. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Some were convinced, but some disagreed. And Paul does not say that this is merely an intellectual problem with the Jewish people. Rather, he pronounces what Isaiah said. That because of your sinfulness, your heart is dull. Your ears are closed sinfully to the truth. Notice that Paul tells those who are not convinced of the gospel that they are willingly blind to the gospel. And similarly, we have the language of blindness in 1 John chapter 2, where John clearly tells us, But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The Scripture takes the language of blindness and always applies it to a sinful, willing ignorance of God's Word. And we are made to see only by grace alone. That is, the natural state of every human being in this room and every human being you've ever known is willing, sinful blindness to what God has said. Uh, Those who have children, I'm sure that you have probably given a command to your children that was probably exceedingly clear, maybe three or four or five times. And it is very clear that your child is not just intellectually incapable of knowing what you're saying, but has taken, so to speak, his fingers and put them in his ears or her ears and refuses to hear what you're saying. And the same thing's true with us, brothers and sisters. Do you you recall Stephen when he preached in Acts chapter 7 that after he got done and said that you have spurned the Holy Spirit even as your fathers did, that they shoved their fingers in their ears and ran at him? That's what we do. We put our spiritual fingers in our ears and our spiritual hands over our eyes so we don't have to see what God has to say to us. We do not have spiritual knowledge because we're unspiritual. And left with this knowledge alone, brothers and sisters, we're hopeless. I hope you see that. If to know God is to have eternal life, to be spiritually blind is to be hopeless. And truly, without Christ, we are hopeless. And this symbol of blindness ought to convince us of our inability in and of ourselves to see saving truth, saving knowledge, and even good and true knowledge after we are saved. It should help us to see our inability and drive us to Christ for healing and mercy. And this is where our text becomes exceedingly good news. Okay, So after we've gone through and seen what the Scripture says, what signs are, what they're supposed to do, and what blindness is, 
This particular sign teaches that Christ is willing. Christ is able and willing to open the eyes of the blind. Now, those are two important words that we ought to realize. And there's a hymn that we sing. He is able. He is willing. Doubt no more. First, we ought to see that Christ is able to heal these men. And these men believe that. Notice. In Matthew chapter 20, as we enter this text, these blind men sitting by the roadside, they realize that Passover time is here and there are going to be multitudes of crowds coming by and could be a a good time to be able to get needed money to sustain their lives. And they hear that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And notice their response First, they recognize their need, don't they? These men, we see in our text, are believing men. They call out to Christ, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. These men have faith in their hearts, worked in their hearts, and I believe with everything I have, at the end of this text, when they recover their sight and follow Him, it shows the desire of their heart when they are blind. They're blind and unable to follow Jesus. They're blind and unable to go to Passover to worship with God's people. They have no ability to do it. And they call out to Christ. They recognize their need. And they recognize who Christ is. I just want us to notice here that they call Jesus Christ Lord three times. In our passage, two times they repeat, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then in verse 33, they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Now, certainly we can take this text as they're merely being polite and saying master in some way. But I don't think that their faith allows us to see that 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 blindly. These men recognized who Jesus Christ was. He is called the son of David twice in this passage. Son of David, have mercy on me. And we ought to see here that these men were not just putting together random phrases. That they were confessing that what was promised in 2 Samuel 7. That God would give a son to David to sit on his throne to rule over forever. This was true of this particular man coming through. He is Lord. He is Son of David. And notice as well, they recognize and believe his merciful Have mercy on me. They recognize not just his character, though. They recognize his ability. That he is able. If he chooses to be merciful, they could be healed of their blindness. These men have no other hope to be able to worship with God's people. No other hope to follow after Jesus, but they be cured of their blindness. And even in the face of opposition, the crowd, like the Pharisees in chapter 21, which we will see, say, be silent. They cried out all the more. He was their only hope. He was their only hope. In short, these men believe who Christ is, and there is an ability in Jesus Christ to cure their inability and make him follow them. And the question that we should have in our mind, which we already know the answer to, is will he do it? These men see his ability to heal. The question is, will he actually heal them? And the wonderful gospel news to us is not only that Jesus is able to heal, but that he shows himself to be willing to heal these men. 
This plea for mercy is met with pity. He looked upon them in compassion and healed them. It's not just because like any other king, myself, if I was ever a king, which I never will be, somebody came to me and is asking for something from me. I might think, well, it's my duty. Everybody's watching. I might as well do it. Jesus is moved with compassion to these two men. He desires to heal them because of their faith in him. And they follow after him. They follow after him. These men, for the first time perhaps in their lives, go to Passover. And these men are going to be with the crowd that lays out palm branches on the road and say, Hosanna to the son of David. These are going to be men who will witness the Son of God crucified. Now, Christian, this text is not given to you so that you might just see a historical event and say how good God was to these two blind men in particular. We do do that, of course. But we are supposed to see the fuller account. This account is given to us so that we might be encouraged to seek after the compassionate son of David for spiritual knowledge, knowing that he will hear us through faith. And so that brings us to our two applications, so to speak. First is be encouraged to seek wisdom from Jesus Christ. This miracle, then, is designed to encourage two different groups of people. First, it's to encourage the lost. Now, in the immediate context that we have, we've already noted that we have multitudes of people coming, not following Jesus necessarily, but going up to Passover as any Jewish person would do. Okay? And what we should notice here is the very public manner in which Jesus heals these men. Now, we might say, well, what's the big deal about this being done publicly? If you'll just turn with me to see this beautiful reality, I think, in Matthew chapter 9. It's striking to me that Matthew twice records what would seem to be almost the same event. Matthew chapter 9, notice verses 27 through 30. This is still in Galilee. And Jesus passed on from there, 927, two blind men, two blind men followed him, saying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, notice that, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. He then touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, let it be done. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. The similarities in this passage are striking, aren't they? We have two blind men, both calling out for mercy from the son of David. But the difference is striking, isn't it? Do you see it there? That in Matthew chapter 9, privacy is highlighted, isn't it? These two men follow after Jesus, crying out after him, but he doesn't answer them until they enter a house. And they're together in the house, and then Jesus says, do you believe I'm able, and heals them. And then he says, don't tell anybody about it. But it seems to me in this text that Jesus almost tries to make it more public. 
Why do I say that? Well, Jesus allows repeated cries of these men, doesn't he? It's not just the first time that they say, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me, and he takes them aside privately and then heals them quickly so nobody notices, which would have been easy to do probably with a throng of people. He doesn't do that. He allows them to repeatedly cry out to him. And this Greek word means to cry out. They were lifting up their voices and hollering so everybody could hear. And even with the crowd, they so hear these men that they're annoyed and tell them to be quiet. And he heals them in front of all of them. Now, this isn't just a thought in my mind either, because in Luke chapter 18, this same recorded event from Luke's angle, Luke says, and immediately... He recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying glorifying God. And notice, and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Jesus does this in a very public manner before this whole crowd around. And this is no doubt in order to encourage doubting souls to come to him. Certainly there were people with the throng knew Jesus and his miracles and his preaching and what he did, but in their minds they possibly were thinking, I want to believe that he's the Son of God, but maybe he will not accept me. Maybe he will not accept me. They perhaps see their sin and their own spiritual blindness, much like these men, and acknowledge that they're not saved. They know they're under God's wrath and God's curse, but they have not yet come to trust in Jesus Christ fully. And this is often the first work of the Spirit that God does upon our hearts, doesn't He? I know with myself, there was a time when I was convinced of the truth of the Bible that God was an avenging God and I was a sinner. I was sure of that, but I wasn't positive that I could be saved from my sin. And this acknowledgement of blindness is one of the the key things that we ought to see. And I I hope you're still with me because I want you to turn with me to John chapter 9. Because Jesus, as he often is working in blindness as a symbol, he shows us in John chapter 9 that blindness must be a thing that's acknowledged by us. Okay, for us to be healed of it. Notice in John chapter 9, 39 through 41, this is the wonderful text of Jesus healing the blind man born from birth, blind. Um, Verse 39, he tells this blind man, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him said, heard these things, rather, and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. There were certainly people following after Jesus this day who saw that they were under God's curse and they realized their need of salvation. And this was meant to encourage them. He is willing and able to save any that would come to him. They knew 
from witnessing this sign that God is in fact merciful and compassionate to them. And these two, merc- these two beggars being healed, they, they witness and communicate to us something. It communicates to us that God's mercy towards sinners is beyond a shadow of a doubt. When these people, when lost people witness this, they should be convinced of it. And so, brothers and sisters, the thing that comes to my mind almost immediately is how wonderful this passage is for evangelism. Now, that might seem to be a strange thing to say, but this text, I am convinced, is meant to encourage people to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And 2 Corinthians 4 tells us that all are blind in their sins. All are blind in their sins, and they need the power of God to bring them out of that blindness. Notice in verse 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, just stay with me here. God of this world, the devil blinds those who are unbelieving. Why? To keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. That is, the beauty of the gospel. There are many unbelievers out there that might agree with the historical events of the gospel. Or even say that what the Bible says is true. And yet, they do not recognize Jesus Christ as beautiful and lovely. They do not recognize Jesus as being the glory and light of God given to us. But this text, I think, beautifully shows the condition of the sinner in the heart of Jesus Christ. We come and we evangelize to people. And I think we should show them, listen, brothers and sisters, or listen, lost person. Jesus is willing and able to heal you. If you just come to him and trust him, he will bring you light and salvation. He encourages us to come to Christ and he will accept and he will heal you. But this text is also meant to encourage us sitting in this room today. It's not just to encourage the lost to come to Christ for full healing from total blindness. It's to encourage the disciples. It's to encourage those who have already had spiritual blinders taken off of our eyes and yet we do not see as clearly as we ought to. Much like that man in another healing uh, Another healing miracle that Jesus did. Jesus touched his eyes and he said, at first I see men walking as trees. They could see partially but not fully. And that's much like us in the Christian life, isn't it? It's much like us. Now, to see this, that this miracle is designed not only to encourage the lost on the road with him, but also the disciples, I want us to look at the broader context here. The broader previous context. The disciples, from chapter 16 and onward, there has been a consistent theme that they are misunderstanding the kingdom of God. They do not understand kingdom ethics. Okay, That is, in chapter 19, we see Christ going through teaching about marriage, and the disciples just don't get it. Teaching about children and our behavior towards children, and they just don't get it. The rich young ruler comes up to them and he says, what must I do to be saved? And it's pretty clear that the disciples just don't 
understand what's being said here. Rewards of the kingdom of heaven. They think that rewards are given to those who have done the most work and put in the most labor, and they're going to get more in the kingdom. And Jesus says that's not necessarily the case, but it's up to the grace of the master who gives it. But more than that, they have been confused about the work of Jesus Christ. From chapter 16 and verse 21 on, Jesus has shifted his ministry to teach them that he must go to Jerusalem, must suffer from the scribes and elders, be crucified, and on the third day be raised. And over and over again, the disciples show that they just are not grasping. They're not seeing what Jesus Christ is trying to tell them. They are not seeing it. And here, again in Luke chapter 18, we see in the clearest language they didn't understand. Notice this language. After Christ has told them he must go to Jerusalem and suffer, this is what Luke tells us. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. And they did not grasp what was said. This text, this miracle, is not meant to only encourage the lost on the road, but these disciples who understood so little about the kingdom of heaven and yet were Christ's sheep, it was designed to encourage dim-sided and myopic disciples, Christians. I, I think you know this, don't you? Christians can become blind in what they believe. They can become dim and not understand spiritual truth. It's very clear, and this text calls us, like the blind men, to acknowledge our propensity to blindness, our propensity to believe untruth, our propensity to reject the gospel in our day-to-day existence. We have several examples of this, especially our need to acknowledge our blindness. Notice in Revelation chapter 3, the wonderful text to the church in Laodicea, In verses 17 and 18, Jesus himself says to this congregation of people who believe in him. He says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may clothe yourself And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You see what Jesus Christ is doing here to this church. He tells them, you're saying that you see clearly, much like the Pharisees. He says, but you don't realize the reality that you're you're spiritually blind, at least to certain things. Christ calls out in Revelation for us to understand and recognize our propensity to not see spiritual truth rightly. We have to acknowledge our blindness and call out to God for wisdom. And we know this from several texts, don't we? We see Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. Doesn't that imply that without God's Spirit working in us, we don't see what the Word of God even is supposed to say to us? We have to call to Him, open my eyes, God, that I might see wondrous things out of your law. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generally to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. 
brothers and sisters, we are prone to not know the way we're to go in the Christian life. We're prone to not believe the things that we ought to believe in the Christian life. And the first step and the first thing this communicates to me is that we must be people that acknowledge that we can be blind to things. We can be people who don't see things as clearly as we think we do. And to always be in a heart attitude of saying, God, I need you to open my eyes so that I would behold wondrous things out of your law. Jesus Christ communicates. He's compassionate even to us, brothers and sisters. How often do we think that Christ is compassionate? Yes, to the outside world. But to us, somehow we feel he's a little more restricted in himself. It's not true. He's willing and able to show us the truth and to lead us in righteousness. No matter your condition, whether you be lost or saved here today, full encouragement is given through this miracle to come to him and to say, have mercy on us, son of David. Open my eyes so that I might see. But there's another side of this sign. As wonderful as it is, and I I hope you see it as wonderful, the encouragement offered for any to come to him, there is a warning implicit in this sign. A warning of refusing to come to him. Refusing to acknowledge our blindness. Refusing to humble ourselves before God. And this judgment comes to those who believe that they see. Now, This is, again, clear, not from the previous context like the disciples, but the context that comes afterward, the subsequent context. In in chapter 21, rather, we see Jesus Christ entering in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And these people who followed him into Jerusalem, Galileans, they're laying down palm branches and they're worshiping him. But we see the Pharisees. As men who do not see, but yet confess that they do see, clearly. He comes to Jerusalem, the pilgrims recognize him, but Jerusalem says, who is this? In verse 10. Jesus has been many times to Jerusalem by this point, by the way. His fame has spread so abroad that people come to Galilee to seek him out. And yet the whole city, notice that in verse 10 of chapter 21. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? They don't recognize who he is. These two blind men from Jericho, which in the Old Testament is a cursed city, see Jesus for who he is. But Jerusalem, supposedly a spiritual city with light and knowledge of salvation, Jesus comes and they say, who is this? Who is this? And even more, the Pharisees hear the crowd's praise and the children praising him in the temple. And what do they do? Well, much like the crowd, they say, do you hear what they're saying about you? They don't believe. They don't see. They're unwilling to see. They're spiritually blind, and they're happy to be there. And this contrast brings greater judgment, doesn't it? That grace has entered the life of these two blind men, and we see it and we experience it. But to refuse grace clearly offered brings a greater judgment Brings a greater judgment. And isn't that what we read in John chapter 9? For judgment I came into this world. That those who say they see may become blind. They say that they see. They have no need for healing. They have no need for teaching. They are sufficient in and of themselves to know the truth. They need not submit to anything. 
And we ought to be aware of this very unchristian spirit. Judgment comes on those who believe that they see, who have no humility of heart to call out to the Lord for wisdom and even to to go to the church for wisdom. And the warning to us is that we cannot ignore providence, brothers and sisters. We cannot ignore providence. Everybody in this room, whether you're a little child or a little bit more grown child or totally grown, all of you, because you're here today, are set in a context of grace. You have grown up in homes where grace has been seen. And more than that, you have seen the gospel work in the lives of your parents, of your spouse, of your neighbor, of your coworker. If you're around Christian people, you've seen this. You've seen them come to spiritual knowledge and then gradually have the blinders removed from their eyes and be healed to see things more clearly. And if you reject that, there's more condemnation there to reject light. God's goodness has come and shown how willing He is to show the truth to sinners and those who come to faith by Him. So again, to everybody here, children and grown people alike, we are called to turn to the compassionate Son of God. To recognize who we are, our own propensity to spiritual blindness, and not to trust ourselves, but to call out to Him to show us truth. He is revealed in this text. He's revealed here. He's revealed in the preaching of His Word here today for you so that you would trust Him and Him alone. So in in conclusion today... I think to rightly understand this passage, and as Brother Caleb brought up in Sunday school, to put ourselves under this passage for it to teach us and to change us, we have to recognize that God uses miracles recorded in His Word to communicate something about Himself. And the miracles of Christ are meant to communicate the gospel of Christ. And blindness and the healing from it in particular is supposed to encourage us to go to Him that we don't see things rightly. But yet, he's compassionate and merciful to show us how we ought to walk in this world. And just in closing, we sang that wonderful psalm today. Um, I, I appreciate Brother Matt in tracking that down so that we could say it. And I want this psalm to be impressed upon our hearts as we call out for grace. Just notice with me how often David calls out for God to teach him. Verse 4, David says, Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth, in verse 5, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all day long. Notice verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Notice that. Those that say, I don't see rightly. I don't trust myself. He leads the humble in what is right. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimony. Notice verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. 
In verse 14, lastly, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. Brothers and sisters, strong encouragement today to go to Jesus Christ. Whatever you're confused about, whether it be doctrinally or practically in your obedience to life, go to him, trust him, call out to him in grace. Go to your brothers and sisters for them to call out to him by grace. And we are encouraged in every way to to trust him that he will give us knowledge. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, we, we come before you. I thank you for your word today. Uh, I thank you for um, giving me encouragement this week to come to you and to trust you. And I pray that you would give that to all your people. In Jesus' name, amen.